hello everyone and welcome to this amazing Christmas Eve weekend. We're so glad that you're in worship this weekend. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the birth narratives of Jesus, at how it all happened that the long-awaited Messiah really came, just as the prophets had said so long ago. But today, I want us to turn our attention to a little bit different episode in Jesus' life, some of his maturing years. Now, in the coming weeks and months as we study through the Gospel of Luke, I think it's going to be very exciting for all of us because we're going to learn a whole lot about Jesus as a full-grown man walking this earth, as the Messiah, the one sent from God, the unique Son of God. But here's the deal. We don't have a whole lot of information about his growing up years. Now, if I were to ask you, do you have some photos of your growing up years? I'll bet some of you would be able to pull out a lot of them, right? Some of you would have a whole video archive, right? Those cute little videos of you growing up, and especially if you're a little younger, you may have a whole bunch of those, and they're kind of fun to look back on. But here's the interesting thing. Today's passage is the only snapshot we have of Jesus growing up years. We have quite a bit about his birth. We have a whole lot, so to speak, about his life and ministry as a young adult. But we have very little about his growing up. And yet, Jesus faced that same journey to maturity that all of us do. And it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it can be frustrating, but he faced it differently. He did it without sin. So as we focus on that journey today to maturity, on this Christmas Eve weekend, I want us to think about some ways that we can mature. Because I want, to, I want you to understand something. Wherever you are today on this journey of maturity, God wants you to take the next step. That's important. He wants you to take the next step of maturity, whatever that is, until you become a fully Christ-centered person. So let's go on the journey today, and I hope there'll be something practical, I believe there will, for you and for me as we also seek to mature in Christ. The first snapshot I want us to see is identification. Here we're asking the question, who is Jesus and what is he going to become? Let's start with verse 21. We're in Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Now, circumcision, of course, was a reminder of God's Old Testament covenant with his people. And that covenant had been renewed in the Mosaic law. And for centuries now, it was the Jewish custom to bring male children on the eighth day for circumcision. But in Jesus' case, as recorded in Matthew 1.21, there was something that had already occurred. You see, 
The eighth day is also when babies were given a name officially. That's when they were actually officially named. But in Matthew 1.21, an angel had appeared to Joseph and said, She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So in Mary and Joseph's case, they already knew what the name of their son would be. As you may know, names in ancient times were very important. They usually spoke about some characteristic, some trait, maybe even some deep mission or purpose about a person. And that's why God chose the name Jesus, by the way. It means God saves or the Lord saves. Somebody said you could even translate it, God to the rescue. And I really like that because that's what we needed most. We needed to be saved from our sins, and that's why he came. And so that name, that one word, captured his whole identity in that one simple word. Now, let me ask you a personal question. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know who you are? No, really. <laughs> do you know who you are? Oh, I know it may sound like a strange question, but I want to tell you, after many, many years of ministry, I've concluded that most professing followers of Jesus don't really know who they are. If we really knew, we'd be a lot more courageous. We'd have a lot better self-esteem. We'd have more confidence as we live for God day by day. We'd be more effective in our relationships. And let me tell you, we would be a lot less prone to discouragement and hopelessness if we really knew who we are. Do you understand that God has declared who you are in his word? He has said some things about you there in his word that are important for you to understand. He has declared, and this is true no matter how you feel today, no matter whether you feel lonely or marginalized, no matter whether you feel like you're on the wrong side of the tracks or you've not been treated fairly or people haven't given you your due, I want you to know God has said you are accepted in the beloved when you belong to Christ. He said that you are blessed beyond measure. God has declared today that you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, that you are God's child, that you are destined for heaven, that all of your needs are supplied through Jesus Christ, that you don't have to be a slave to fear any longer. God has declared that you will flourish, flourish as a person when you continue in his word. Did you know those things about yourself? Do you know who you are? Here's the deal. When Christ's followers don't understand who they are, they're much more prone to falter on the journey to maturity. That's why this first snapshot is so critical. 
Make it your goal this Christmas and this New Year season, dear friend, to find out who you really are in Christ. And trust me, it will turbo boost your growth as a Christian as you go from being a beginner in Christ to close to Christ to becoming fully Christ-centered. I don't know of anything that will boost that growth more than finding out who God has declared you really are. And when you embrace that, it makes all the difference in the world. But there's a second snapshot I want you to consider, not just identification. Let's think now for a moment about this word, consecration, as I read on in verse 22. When the time of their purification, now this is speaking of Joseph and of Mary, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated, consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, what we're reading about here took place approximately on the 40th day of Jesus' life. The law had stipulated that if a family could not afford to bring a lamb for this offering, that they could bring two doves or two pigeons. And Luke records here that that's exactly what happened in this case. Now, I believe it's very significant that Mary and Joseph were involved in consecrating their child, really more, it's a consecration of themselves to God. Did you know we practice a similar thing here at Grace? Did you know that? Ever, ever since year one, we have had what we call parent-child dedications, where loving parents bring their precious children and present them before God. And I or another pastoral leader here will hold the child. This happens at all of our campuses these days. Pastor will hold the child, pray over that child, say words of blessing, just like happened here. But you know what? It's interesting. We can't consecrate that child's will to God. They may be too young to even understand what's going on. Often that's the case. But it's more about the parents. And as that child grows and looks back at pictures or videos later, and they may ask questions like, what really happened that day? When I was there before that whole church body and prayers were said, what was that about? And parents can share. Look, that's when we set you on a charted course with God. That is a very special moment. But let me ask you a question as an adult. Whatever your age, have you ever, have you ever consecrated yourself to God have you ever said, Lord, I belong to you and I consecrate myself to do your will, whatever it is, whatever the cost? That's been my custom since I was 15 years old. Every single year between Christmas and New Year, I reconsecrate myself all over again. I'm going to suggest that to you, actually. I take some time. I try to get alone, and usually I take at least a few hours. Some years I've taken a, a whole day or so, 
and I reflect on my life, where I am, how my journey to maturity is going, where am I getting stuck, how am I doing with fulfilling God's purposes for my life, and then I pray and I make some goals and I reconsecrate myself all over again and say, Lord, I am yours, lock, stock, and barrel, 100%. I would challenge you to do that this year. What a special moment that would be in your journey with Christ. It's a powerful time of renewal for me. When we consecrate ourselves, I'm not talking here about salvation. I'm talking about once you already belong to Christ, you make a special time of consecrating yourself. We've looked at identification, consecration, and let me add, without these, I don't know how anyone, any of us, can move on to maturity in Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. But now I want us to see a third word, and that's the word affirmation. I'm gonna start here in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, what does that mean? He was waiting for the consoling or the consolation of Israel. If you're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, <coughs> that would be code language for the coming of the Messiah. You would right away know, wow, he is looking with bated breath for the Messiah to come. Now, Simeon was faithfully serving and watching. He was not a priest. But do you know any elderly people that are just respected by everyone like Simeon was? Boy, we've got some amazing women and men in our congregation like that. The people who know them just respect them for their faithfulness and their integrity and how consistently they've been walking with God. Well, that's the way Simeon was. And he was eagerly anticipating the coming Messiah. It had been revealed to him, verse 26 says, by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I wonder how Mary and Joseph felt at that moment as this old man took their tiny baby in his arms and said these words. Were they thinking, oh, please be careful, sir. Hold him carefully. Oh, support his neck, please. And I wonder what they thought about his words. I wonder when they mentioned salvation, if Mary and Joseph felt a sense of relief, like, wow, we're glad we're not the only ones that God has revealed this to. But then Simeon goes on. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. You see, Simeon is speaking here 
prophetically about what will happen in the future. What incredible words. Mary, a sword is going to pierce your own soul too. He's speaking, of course, of all the pain that Mary would go through as she saw her own firstborn son abused, tortured, and indeed endure a brutal death on the cross as he died there as an atoning sacrifice for my sins and your sins. I wonder if Mary in the coming years ever wished that Simeon hadn't told her that because it must have been quite a burden to bear knowing or wondering what exactly that was going to be. But God chose to unite this elderly man and this little baby in order to teach a lesson. Nancy Dahlberg wrote, It was Sunday and it was Christmas Day. Our family spent the holidays in San Francisco with my husband's parents. But in order for us to be back to work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles back home to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. We stopped for lunch at Team City, the only restaurant open, and it was nearly empty. We were the only family in there with children. I heard Eric, my one-year-old, squeal with glee, Hi there! Two words that he thought was one. Hi there, hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, 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 on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled, chirped, and giggled. Then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it all in at once. Tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn, baggy pants, spindly body, toes that poked out of would-be shoes, a shirt that had ring around the collar and a ring around everything, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between, what do we do? And that poor man. Well, our meal came, and by now the old man was shouting from across the room, do you know how to play patty cake? Do you know how to play patty cake? That a boy. How about peekaboo? Do you know how to play peekaboo? Hey, he knows how to play peekaboo. Eric continued to laugh and answer each time. Hi there, hi there. And every call was echoed. But by now, no one thought it was cute. The old guy had become a disturbance, and I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, what is that old man talking? Why is that old man talking so loudly? Dennis went to pay the check and implored me to get Eric and meet him in the parking lot. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I bolted for the door, and it soon was obvious that both the Lord and Eric had different plans. As I drew closer to the man... I turned my back, walking to sidestep him, and as I did, Eric, all the while with his eyes riveted to his new best friend, 
leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms to a baby's pick-me-up position. And in a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eyeball to eyeball with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, would you let me hold your baby? And there was no need to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the man's. Suddenly a very old man and a very young baby were united. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder and the man's eyes closed and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands full of grime and pain and hard labor gently, so gently, cradled, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment. And then his eyes opened and he sat squarely on mine and he said in a firm, commanding voice, you take care of this baby. And somehow I managed, I will. Then he pried Eric from his chest as though he was in pain. And I held my arms open to receive my baby and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. Simeon waited a lifetime for this moment. And now he was holding a baby that would sometime in the years to come transform humanity. What a thrill. What a gift. For Simeon, John Piper, a theologian I greatly respect, writes that he believes the reason Luke includes this story is in order to illustrate there's no conflict between the old covenant and the new that is coming. Between the law and the prophets in the old covenant and all that was going to be included in the new. And so in depicting the most devout people, people like Simeon, who were righteous and devout in the Old Covenant, he shows them as most receptive to the new era. And then we fast forward like crazy. In a matter of two verses, verses 39 and 40, we go from 40 days old to about 12 years old. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Here's a picture of a faithful family who modeled obedience to the Lord. Mary and Joseph were trying to do their absolute best. They weren't perfect parents, but they parented well. And that leads us to one more snapshot today on this journey to maturity. And that is maturation. Maturation. New Testament scholar Lewis Foster writes, the Jewish boy was introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood at the age of 13. So the age of 12 was that hinge year, that transition year from boyhood into the full responsibilities of adulthood. And the Jewish parents got involved in that process 
of maturation for their children. We do the same today. If you have a daughter who's going to babysit, you don't start her off babysitting with some kids from 7 o'clock till 2 in the morning, do you? Probably not. You probably have her start with just an hour and a half or maybe a couple of hours some afternoon when you're nearby just to see how things go. And then gradually, there's a little more independence with that until you see that she's growing in responsibility. And the same is true with a young person learning to drive. We get these driver's permits, right? Because we want a coach, someone in the seat next to them, to try to give a little guidance and coaching about driving to make sure it's going to be okay until they're finally ready for their first solo trip. Say, hey, okay, you can go to the store now by yourself and get us a gallon of milk and come back as quick as you can. Well, no, not too quick, okay? Not too quick, but, but come back right away. And it's all a part of that maturing process. Verse 41 reads, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. By the way, devout Jewish families who lived within at least 15 miles of Jerusalem were expected, and most of them did indeed, attend at least three festivals a year, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Boy, this is every parent's fear, isn't it? And this is not a home alone situation where they're driving in the old family station wagon and they kind of look in the back seat and think, boy, we've got more room coming back than we did when we were going. No, this is very understandable because then in that culture, people kind of traveled in caravans as relatives and families. And the women usually traveled together and the men traveled together and that allowed two particular things. It allowed safety as they traveled in groups, but it also provided wonderful fellowship. As they had no smartphones, they had no telephones, they had no way to really communicate, to text one another. And so this was precious time when often they would get caught up on events in their lives. But after traveling for a whole day, when they camped out that night, they realized Jesus wasn't there. Remember, he was on that hinge year. And so Mary probably assumed, well, he's a grown-up young man now. He's with his dad. And Joseph probably assumed, well, he's probably with his mom, and she knows where he is. And when they realized that neither of them knew where he was, can you imagine the panic, the fear, the frustration. They went through every range of emotion you can imagine. After three days, verse 46 says, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. By the way, it was the custom then for the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of 
70 leaders of Israel. It was the custom at Passover for them to have a sort of open forum in the temple. And people could join in and ask questions and discuss theology with these leaders. And Jesus joined right in. Oh, how I wish we had the questions he asked them. Oh, how I wish we had a snippet of this dialogue. We have no reason to believe that things were adversarial at all. But uh, the thing that strikes me is in that day, unlike our day, where teachers usually stand and students usually sit, in that day, the teacher sat and the students usually stood around the teacher who was sitting. But did you catch those words? Jesus was sitting. I think they were amazed at the questions and the understanding and the insights of this precocious young man. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It seems that Joseph and Mary, in spite of the revelations, in spite of all that had occurred, it seemed they did not fully understand yet the purpose and the mission of Jesus. But notice that irony there in what we just read. Your father and I, have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus responds, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus is declaring clearly here, not in disobedience, not in spite. There's no sin involved in this. There's no disrespect. He's simply declaring clearly where his priority lies. It's in pursuing his heavenly Father's mission for his life. And by the way, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in all the Bible. And isn't it kind of appropriate that it would be all about doing his Father's work, his Father's mission? I think that's amazing. Max Lucado, in his book, God Came Near, asked a number of questions of Mary. He says, Mary, how did you act when he got his first haircut? Did he ever come home with a black eye? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone that you couldn't hear? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? What do you think he thought when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder the body that he had made? Did the thought ever occur to you, Mary, that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof. Verse 52, to me, it's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It simply says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Years ago, when dinosaurs roamed this planet, and I was a youth pastor, Really, it happened, really. I, for years, I was a student minister, and I worked with young people, teenagers in particular, and verse 52 was my theme verse. For every youth ministry I was a part of, I wanted those young people to grow intellectually, 
physically, spiritually, and socially exactly the way it says Jesus grew here. By the way, I want you to know that as a church, that is certainly our goal for our young people. I'm so thankful that we have so many amazing staff and volunteer leaders who are superbly committed to seeing young people grow in all of these ways. It's such an important thing that we begin children in the right way and that we see them on through to adulthood on that road to maturity. And I believe some of their best memories in life should be memories from vacation Bible schools and youth camps and youth events and Christian concerts and being together with their friends and being challenged in their walk with Jesus Christ. Now, as we close today, I think there's one powerful lesson that all of us need to take away from this. Here it is. Here it is, plain and simple. We all must choose to grow and mature spiritually. Nobody can make that choice for you. Whether you're 12 or 20 or 50 or 80, each of us must choose to mature spiritually. No one else can do that for us. But I want to add one other lesson for parents. Based on today's story, parents, you are to be the primary shaper of your children's spiritual lives. Again, you've already heard me say how much I appreciate what our amazing student ministries at Grace, our kids' celebration ministries, all that they do, all that the incredible Christian schools in our area do for young people and the sources, the resources they provide are amazing. I love it, I love it, I love it. But you parents, you are the primary shapers of your children's spiritual lives and we cannot relegate that to anyone else. Charles Campbell said, Jesus grew up the baby in the manger became full-grown and changed the world. And the full-grown Jesus, who is alive and ruling this universe at this moment, gestures to us and invites us to grow up, to become who he created us to be, who he calls us to be. And I think we can all say amen to that. So can I make a gift suggestion to you? Ah, you've probably got all your shopping done, right? I know there's probably a few men here who would say, no, I haven't started yet, actually. Well, I understand, but I want to suggest, I want to suggest a gift to your heavenly Father that will warm his heart. Embrace your identity. Number one, who he's declared you to be, fully forgiven, free in him, more than a conqueror. All these things he said about you, embrace that. There's a starting point. Second, consecrate yourself. Find some time, even an hour between Christmas and New Year, and just get alone and recommit yourself to God and his purposes all over again. And if you've never done it, it will be a marvelous beginning point for you. Third, accept the affirmation of God's 
mission and purpose in your life. Everybody has a purpose. You are not here by accident. And whatever that is, accept that affirmation. Just as Simeon affirmed the mission of Jesus. And finally, commit yourself on that journey to maturity. Wherever you are right now, whether you're a new beginner in Christ, whether you're close, or you're already in that Christ-centered zone, commit yourself to taking the next step. And I'm going to tell you something, friend. What an amazing Christmas gift that will be for your Heavenly Father. It will not only warm His heart, it will turbo boost your own growth to maturity. Father, thank you for this snapshot in the life of Jesus. We marvel, we marvel at your indescribable gift. Thank you that Christmas is all about that. The unique Son of God come to earth to save sinners like us. And as we celebrate that, we also eagerly anticipate your second coming. Hallelujah. Thank you that you've not left us alone. As we work and worship and witness, let us wait, being active for you, growing every step of the way, fully committed to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.